This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Right now, the Supreme Court is hearing cases that could have a big impact on our civil rights and the future of discrimination law. With a court that has already overturned precedents like Roe v. Wade, we need to pay attention. This week, the gender justice legal team joins me, Erin May Quaid, to break down the cases that will shape the future of civil rights and discrimination law, free speech, gun violence, and the ability of our federal agencies and programs to function. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome, everybody. We are so excited that you are here with us today at Gender Justice to talk about some of the Supreme Court cases that the Supreme Court is going to hear this term and what that state because of those cases. I'm Erin May Quaid. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the special projects advisor. And joining me today is the esteemed legal team at Gender Justice. I'm not going to have them introduce themselves around Robin. I'm going to have us go into our presentation and they'll introduce themselves as they start presenting. So we're going to talk about some cases, what's at stake, and really learn a little bit more about how could the world change come June of 2024? Christy Hall, my longest colleague on the legal team here at Gender Justice, before we get into the cases, can you just give us a little bit of primer on the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court, and maybe how these cases have arrived there? Yeah, sure. To introduce myself, my name is Christy Hall. I'm a senior staff attorney at Gender Justice. I use she, her pronouns. And I wanted to give some basics about how the court works, but also talk about some background about the Supreme Court, like what to look for this term and how to situate this term in the court's history, just as a a kind of starter about how the court actually functions. So there are federal courts of appeals, they're sometimes called circuit courts around the country that hear and decide cases. And when you lose at the court of appeals, then you can um, petition for the Supreme Court to review that decision. The Supreme Court takes a small fraction of those cases and decides them. And we're going to hear about a few of those cases from this term today. And then, but just to frame this term or this year for the court in its history, we all know that the current court is extremely, I think, conservative (laughs) is one way to put it. But it's also important to remember that the Supreme Court justices are individuals, individual human beings. And I think it's also important to remember that they're politicians. We don't often admit or acknowledge that, but they are. They're well aware of how overruling Roe v. Wade has been perceived and the effect that it's having in electoral politics. They're they're also under increased scrutiny because of ethics concerns. And so I think we can expect that they will likely try their best to look moderate this term. And so I think it's important to pay attention to like, how does the court behave when people are paying a lot of attention, close attention to a case? How do they pay? How do they behave when we're not paying as close attention? That's more kind of like about how the court as an institution generally operates. And one other thing that I wanted to point out is that you're going to hear also a lot about the Fifth Circuit in these cases, because the Fifth Circuit has been, frankly, behaving in a a really outlier way. If you look at the history of how circuit courts operate um, in that they are being far more conservative and they're just not sticking to precedent in the same way that circuit courts typically do and those kinds of things. So it will be interesting to also observe how the Supreme Court does or does not try to restrain them. And that's, I could go on for hours, but we have limited time. So I'll leave it there. We could listen to you for hours, Christine. You're one of my favorite people to listen to speak about things that I don't know a ton about. And speaking of that, why don't you tell us a little bit about the first case? Who is the who are the parties in the case you're covering? What's the issue in the case that you're going to talk about? Sure. So the case that I'm uh, presenting on is Muldrow versus the city of St. Louis. And the parties in that case, Jatanya Muldrow, she uh, is a police officer in St. Louis. She's a black woman. She is a sergeant in that in that in the St. Louis Police Department. And she had a job working for the intelligence division, 
within the police department. And when a new supervisor came in, she was transferred to the fifth district, which is like a precinct in other jurisdictions. You might call it a precinct doing tasks like patrolling, routine investigation of crimes and things like that. She filed a lawsuit against the city saying that this transfer was a form of sex discrimination, that she was transferred because she's a woman. And the statute that the case falls under is Title VII. And the text of Title VII is important here because the statute says it is unlawful to discriminate in the compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. And, and the question that the Supreme Court is considering for this case, is a transfer one of those things? Is being transferred one of those things? And is it part of your compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment? In other words, how bad does the impact of discrimination need to be for somebody to be able to sue? If you're transferred, <laughs> is that bad enough of a thing to happen to you to qualify as something that you can sue about? And this case comes out of the Eighth Circuit, which happens to be our circuit in Minnesota. The Eighth Circuit covers Minnesota, North Dakota as well, and several other states. And the Eighth Circuit said that this transfer was not a form of discrimination that was bad enough to be able to sue about because her pay was the same. She's still a sergeant. And what they said is that Title VII doesn't protect you unless the thing, the bad thing that happens to you because of your sex or race or et cetera, et cetera, unless that creates a, quote, significant disadvantage that is sufficient to qualify as an adverse action. And there are a few different things going on here. And one of them is, as you can see, as I've framed the fact, Factually, the idea that this, this transfer doesn't have an impact is, is not totally accurate, right? In fact, she's transferred from a high prestige position in the intelligence department to essentially a patrol position. In addition, working for the intelligence department gave her the ability to work with the FBI. The FBI actually gave her a car. And when she's transferred, the FBI is no longer interested in working with her and says, OK, you don't get the car. And there are tons of other things going on in the background of the facts of this case. But the Supreme Court doesn't review those. The Supreme Court essentially takes the lower court's word for what the facts are. And instead, the Supreme Court is just looking at the law. And they're looking at the text of the statute of Title VII to say, OK, is a transfer that doesn't pr provide a, like a significant disadvantage is that sufficient to qualify as an adverse action that you can sue about under Title VII? It's also important to note that on that legal question, the Eighth Circuit, from my perspective as an employment attorney, is clearly wrong. There are half a dozen amicus briefs in this case from the government, from NILA, from other kind of interested parties, from law professors, et cetera, saying, Actually, the history of Title VII is very clear. They wanted you to be able to sue if you experienced a discriminatory decision, regardless of how bad it is. If it was discrimination that caused this change, then you can sue about it. And so I think that's where the distinction that I was talking about earlier, cases that people are paying a lot of attention to versus cases that not a lot of people are paying attention to is going to come into play. This is not a case that people are paying a lot of attention to. It hasn't been argued yet. It will be argued um, on December 6th. And uh, this is a classic example of the way that the United States Supreme Court regularly undercuts civil rights laws to make them less strong, to make them less enforceable, to make people less likely to succeed when they sue. And so we'll have to see, of course, what they do. And, and But there is a very real chance uh, that the Supreme Court is going to simply approve of what the Eighth Circuit did. But we'll see. They took the case for a reason. They didn't have to take it. They could have let the Eighth Circuit decision stand. So we'll have to see how that goes. And let's say they do let it stand or they do add this additional layer of how bad discrimination has to be before you can sue about it. What could that mean for the rest of us? 
So it means that in order to bring a lawsuit alleging sex discrimination or race discrimination or anything like that in employment, which is what Title VII covers, uh, in federal court, so this is federal court, not state court, state court often follows federal court in many jurisdictions, including in Minnesota. Uh, but if you're suing under Title VII in federal court in the future, if this case comes out badly, if this case comes out, I guess I should say, in favor of the city of St. Louis, future plaintiffs will need to prove that the thing that happened to them that they are suing about was bad enough to create a significant disadvantage. And employers will point to this case and say, when a person was transferred, even if the transfer was to a less prestigious job, even if there were like knock-on effects, such as losing a car, et cetera, uh, or the ability to work with the FBI, that isn't significant. And it will just constrain the ability of people to win these cases in the future and make it harder to enforce Title VII. Terrified. <laughs> and I appreciate you walking through that. I know for us at Gender Justice, this is obviously something we are paying close attention to because we do work in sex discrimination law. So we'll be interested to see how this progresses. Thank you, Christy. I'm going to go next to Sarah Jane and tell us a little bit about the case that you have prepared for us today. Yeah, thanks, Erin. I'm Sarah Jane Baldwin. I'm also a senior staff attorney and my pronouns are she, her. And yeah, so my case is another civil rights related case that we're looking at. It's Atchison Hotels v. Lawford. So this case involves what we call tester standing and specifically whether civil rights testers should have standing to sue. So standing is a legal term that it's one of those terms that you learn in your first year in law school on the first day of civil procedure class. It's a very basic concept, but for the non-lawyers, standing refers to whether a plaintiff has a legal right to bring a case. So can you sue? Do you have a legal right to sue? And usually that means that the plaintiff has experienced an actual harm. So they're the person who's been harmed by whatever they're alleging. And then testers are used in civil rights litigation. So what is a tester? So a tester is someone who brings a sort of test case to identify unlawful discrimination and violation of a particular statute. So violating a particular law. And the most classic example of a tester, I think that makes it easy to understand it is tester cases in, under the Fair Housing Act. So the classic case is both like a white family and a black family go to buy a house or rent an apartment. And neither of them is actually planning to do that, but they both submit applications and both applications are identical, everything's the same. And then if it comes out that the white family's offered the house and the black family isn't, or the white family's offered a better rate or lower rent or something different, then there's potentially discrimination going on there. And this is important because you don't know if you're a black family going to buy a house, so you may not know you're being discriminated against if there's no comparison. And so testers want to see what's going on and test. So it's a way to enforce these civil rights statutes by identifying discrimination. So there's a question here of whether a tester is actually harmed if they were actually planning to do the thing, to, to do the thing to go buy the house. So in this case, in Lawfer or Atchison Hotels, what we're calling it, the civil rights statute at issue is the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. And the tester is this woman named Deborah Lawfer, um, who does use a wheelchair and is, is known to do this. She's a known tester. And she goes online and she looks for hotels and she looks to see if on the website they provide information about their access of their facilities. And this information is required by the ADA. So a hotel has to put on its website whether it's accessible. And so the goal, of course, is to identify places that don't have improper information and then sue and with the goal of compelling compliance. She sues to get them to put the information on their website. Why is this, why is this important? Like, why is it important to have testers and why is it important to have a finding that testers have standing, that they can do this. And again, we saw in the fair housing example, it's important to be able to remedy these violations before someone encounters this discrimination. So before a family goes and encounters it, and also because they, like I said, they may not know. Um, but in the ADA example, it's like you want to know before you get there if the hotel is compliant and is going to meet your needs. It's also just, as an aside, it's very inefficient and unrealistic for 
to enforce these things one at a time when someone is actually harmed. So someone gets to the hotel, it doesn't have a proper ramp for their wheelchair. It's not really practical for them to then sue and wait and all those sorts of things in terms of what the goal of sort of civil rights litigation is forged to find these things and remedy, remedy them before someone is harmed. So this case, I think you had said to me earlier, has already been argued. Tell me a little bit about how that went. What happened? How did it seem like things were going? So you're correct. Yes, this was argued on October 4th. This was already argued before SCOTUS. And the arguments were less about the actual merits of tester standings. There are some little hints at what's going on with tester standing. But really what became the issue is whether this case is already moot. And moot is another one of those legal concepts. But mootness arises when there's no actual controversy between the parties. And in this case, before this case was argued before the Supreme Court, the plaintiff actually dismissed it at the district court level and the defendant updated their website. So like it's done, the plaintiff got what she was seeking and the defendant complied. But the defendant still filed for cert and wanted to bring this before the Supreme Court because the defendant wants people like this tester, who I think he and others consider to be in our modern parlance a troll. Like she's done this 600 times. So this is what she does. They don't want, they don't want testers to have standing. So they want a decision that testers don't have standing. And so the argument was mostly about whether this case is new with the three liberal justices being like, why are we here? This case is moved. This isn't the case to decide this. There's no more case of controversy here. And the conservative justices were actually split between the ones that found it moved who probably are waiting for a better case to, in, in our pessimistic view, probably gut Chester standing and eliminate this way for sort of civil rights groups to enforce these statutes. And then three of the other conservative justices being like, no, let's go there. Let's decide the issue with sort of the concern that they're going to get rid of this sort of testing and gut tester standing and, and not make it allow and make it so it's not allowed anymore. And so we're seeing this in terms of going back to what this court is doing as the climate. This is something we're seeing with this court is why also why did the plaintiff dismiss this? And that's just that the prospect of this court deciding things related to civil rights is it's quite grim. And so I think we see plaintiffs being like, wait a second, let's not push this one any further right now because we don't want this Supreme Court making a precedent setting opinion on this issue. I think the argument or the example you gave about housing and how you can't really know if discrimination is happening to you because you don't always know other people's situations like in housing, um, this is going to have a lot of impact. So I'm, I'm glad you're watching it. I am going to come next to Grace Moore Esquire. And I come off mute, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your case. Yeah, thanks, Erin. My name is Grace Moore. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a legal fellow here at Gender Justice. And I recently was admitted to practice in Minnesota. So thanks, Erin. But yeah, so one of the cases I'll be talking about is CFPB, the Community Financial Services Association. And this is one of the administrative law cases that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing this year. Frequently, administrative law cases don't get as much attention because they folks tend to think they're a little bit more technical. But the next cases that I'm going to talk about have really important implications across our work, across multiple bodies of work. And this is also one of the Fifth Circuit cases that Christy was alluding to earlier. So in this case, Payday Lender, Community Financial Services Association, challenged the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, arguing that a regulation they issued should be vacated because they have an unconstitutional funding mechanism. And this isn't the first time that the CFPB has been challenged and been before the Supreme Court, but this is the first time that its funding mechanism has been brought before the court. And in this case, the challengers argued that the CFPB's mechanism violates the appropriations clause of the Constitution. So to take a step back, Congress passed the law that created the CFPB and its funding structure in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And the idea had been that the CFPB would enforce a wide range of consumer protection laws in the financial sector, including those addressing predatory lending. And as part of Congress's goal to promote financial stability in the wake of this crisis and the political independence of the CFPB, 
Congress set up the CFPB's funding, set it up to receive its funding from the Federal Reserve up to a certain statutory cap. And the Federal Reserve, in turn, is funded through the fees that it charges for the services it provides, the assessments that it makes. And so it does, the CFPB doesn't get its money from an annual appropriations process from Congress, and neither does the Federal Reserve. And the Fifth Circuit said that this is not an appropriation and so that this funding mechanism violates the appropriations clause. Notably, this was a unanimous panel of the Fifth Circuit, all Trump-appointed judges. And tell me a little bit about what uh, this case has been heard. And so you talk a little bit about the what that was like, but also what could be the impact of a decision on this case? Yeah, so the court heard this case in the first week of oral arguments in October. And based on the justices' questions, a lot of court watchers think it's unlikely that the court is going to find the CFPB unconstitutional. But the key question is how the court arrives at that answer. Based on the justices' questions, it's like they're trying to define a test. And the key question is, uh, if the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is upheld as constitutional, will the court announce some new appropriations clause test that is then going to apply to multiple other federal agencies? Um, because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is not the only federal agency, not the only federal program that has an alternative funding structure like this. The Federal Reserve itself doesn't receive appropriations from the annual appropriations process. Federal programs like Medicare and Medicaid also have alternative funding structures. Depending on how the court rules on this case, it could have really profound implications for multiple agencies and programs. This is also a case that, you know, it could allow the judiciary to tell Congress how it's allowed to appropriate funds. So there's some important separations of powers issues in this case. And also, as Christy mentioned earlier, this case is coming out of the Fifth Circuit. And it seems that the Supreme Court is primed to, to reject the Fifth Circuit's ruling However, as Christy was alluding to, that can give the Supreme Court a chance to look a little moderate, step back from the Fifth Circuit, even though then it has opportunities in other cases to align with their thinking. It's certainly true. It feels like the Fifth Circuit has ratcheted up the Overton window in a way that makes even normal decisions seem like progressive ones and some decisions to seem moderate when they're very not. Thank you so much for saying that. And I think you're right. People don't always pay attention to the administrative cases because he started saying appropriations and statutory authority and people were like, ah, I'm sleeping. But this is really important. And you talked about the CFPB was created after the 2008 uh, recession and all of the things that I still, it's just a really important agency too. This has, I think the bank, the big banks were like, please don't get rid of this. It will send mortgages into a tailspin. So we're on the side of big banks, which that's so weird for me to say, but that's how important this case is. You have your next case. And I think this is also administrative related. This one is actually even more like deep historically and has even larger implications. Talk to us a little bit about that case. Yeah, exactly. And I think if anyone is going to have heard of an administrative law case, maybe they'll have heard about Loper. But these two cases are really interesting. So these cases, both Loper Bright Enterprises and Relentless, asked the Supreme Court to overrule or significantly weaken a case called Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, which is a foundational precedent in administrative law and has given rise to what we call Chevron deference. So briefly, I know it sounds technical, but to understand why that matters is generally Congress announces a broad uh, policy goal in federal statutes and Congress can create federal agencies. And then Congress delegates implementing po these policy goals to those agencies who can issue regulations and often questions about how to interpret those statutes that, in, that give agencies power to enforce. And what Chevron says is that when a statute is ambiguous or silent on an issue, courts will defer to a federal agency's interpretation of that statute so long as it is reasonable. So if the statute is clear, then the court will effectuate Congress's clear intent. But Erin, I'm sure as a legislator, it's hard to account for absolutely every issue that could occur and write a perfect statute. So very often in, in highly technical areas, and in specific issues, agencies who are subject matter experts um, are the ones who make these final policy interpretations, and the court will give it deference so long as it's reasonable. And Chevron has been uh, used 
countless times and continues to be relied upon by district courts across the country. Um, but it's also been subject to frequent challenges, and the Supreme Court has been stepping away from Chevron in recent years, um, which brings us to the present case um, in which, so in both Loper Bright Enterprises and in Relentless, commercial herring fishers are challenging a rule issued by the National Marine Fisheries Service, which required the commercial fishers to pay for the cost of federal monitors on their commercial fishing boats to ensure that the boats are in compliance with federal standards. And so federal fishery law is clear that these federal monitors are allowed, but the statute is silent on who pays for those monitors. And so the fishery services, the federal agency, interpreted the statute as allowing the industry, so the commercial fishers themselves, to pay for these monitors. And in both of these cases, the district court determined that First, the fishery statute was silent on this issue and was ambiguous, applied Chevron, and found that the agency's interpretation was reasonable. And in Loper, the D.C. Court of Appeals affirms the district court, and in Relentless, the First Circuit affirmed. And so now both of these cases are headed to the Supreme Court, and they're explicitly asking the court to overrule or significantly narrow Chevron deference. And I think it's important to note, too, that oftentimes when the Supreme Court takes a case, it's because two different circuits or multiple circuits have arrived at different conclusions. And so they're going to settle a law. That's not the case in this these cases. And so the fact that the Supreme Court has taken it indicates that they might want to do something different than what every other circuit court did, which is what's worrying. Tell us about because I think we could hear and be like, oh, herring fishers, like how important is that test? But this has broad implications. Talk to us about what that could be. Yeah. Um, and th if a ruling that diminishes or does away with Chevron deference um, would have really profound implications for uh, truly every federal agency, um, but would also take away policymaking power from federal agencies and, and shift it to the judiciary. Challengers would say that it would shift power back to Congress, that Congress needs to write more explicit statutes but as we've seen through the congressional process, in reality, it would be the judiciary interpreting statutes and being able to make those final policy calls. Courts would be asked to interpret policies far more frequently, perhaps even making small agency changes subjected to protracted litigation. All agencies really could be affected, but particularly for our employment law issues, the Department of Labor, the EEOC. And notably, if the Supreme Court overrules Chevron, this is a court that has also, we've seen, overrule very foundational legal precedent. And so this would come on the heels of that as well. Yeah, and I, I will say, you mentioned it uh, as a lawmaker, it absolutely is impossible to write a statute in a way that, that details implementation. That's really what we leave the experts and the implementers to do, right? So we'll say we'll have paid family medical leave and people will certify on a form that they need leave. Then it's up to the department to say, what does that form look like? And they they come up with all that because that's what their job is. And I can't imagine all of these laws being caught up in the judicial branch, waiting for them to decide how to implement law. That's bananas to me. We're going to go to our next case. Before we get into this case, I'm just going to give a content warning that the case that Brittany is going to speak about talks about guns and domestic violence and gut violence. So I'll just give everyone... That brief warning, if you'd like to take a step back or leave for a little bit, we'll be done with this case in about five minutes. All right. So, Brittany, please introduce yourself uh, to everyone and talk to us a little bit about your case. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am Brittany Stewart. I'm a senior staff attorney at Gender Justice. Pronouns are she, her, and I'm glad to be a part of this amazing team. So... First case I'm talking about today is the U.S. versus Rahimi case out of the Fifth Circuit. And this case is very relevant because last term in New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin, the Supreme Court announced this whole new test on Second Amendment cases that has to do with finding a historical analog all the way back to the founding of the country to determine whether a particular gun regulation is reasonable or not. And in Mr. Rahimi's case, he was in Arlington, Texas in 2019, and a witness saw him shove his girlfriend to the ground and then drag her to a car 
And while he was doing that, a bystander was like trying to record it, at which point Mr. Rahimi turned to the bystander and fired his gun in that direction that allowed the girlfriend time enough to escape and get away. She eventually filed for a domestic violence restraining order. And while that order was in place, Mr. Rahimi was involved in more incidents of pulling out his gun and firing it at buildings and people. He didn't actually hit anybody, but he was definitely acting in a very irresponsible way and was not, in fact, a quote-unquote responsible gun owner. So he eventually got charged on some federal charges. And when the feds charged him, they went ahead and charged him under 18 U.S.C. Section 922G8, which is a federal statute that prohibits the possession of a firearm while under a domestic violence restraining order. His public defender and ultimately the Fifth Circuit determined that there was no historical analog, and therefore this statute prohibiting people from having guns under a domestic violence restraining order was unconstitutional. And so the court took this case up to possibly clarify exactly what what their ruling last year meant. It's a case of their chickens of last year's really broad, vague decision coming home to roost this year. Yeah, and this case has been heard, so I would be very interested to hear how the arguments went. Since this really is like the Fifth Circuit in this case basically did exactly what the Supreme Court said they should do. So tell me how the, the arguments went. Yeah, so the arguments on this were actually just on Tuesday. I listened to them yesterday. It was very interesting. I can tell you that Second Amendment rights activists were actually disappointed that the Supreme Court took this case because even they realized the facts in this case are so bad that even this really far conservative court might not want to quite see their opinion from last year extended to this degree. And the the questions from the justices really tended to show that. They definitely gave the government lawyer a bit of a hard time and challenged some of her positions a bit, but when it came time for Mr. Rahimi's counsel to give up and present his case, the justices really ran him around in circles to the point that at one point, Justice Sotomayor popped up and said, counsel, it sounds like you're trying to run away from all of your arguments in the breed fear. So they really had him running in circles. He did his best, but it was pretty clear that what they were really looking for was trying to decide what does it mean to be a responsible gun owner? And should that line be a person who's responsible? Or should that be a line of a person who's dangerous? Even the conservative justices really pushed counsel for Rahimi on, you would agree that your client is actually a dangerous person, right? And even he was had to be like, what do you mean by dangerous? And they were like, no, we're not really buying this. So my sense from the arguments is the court is going to now try to walk back their decision from last year just a little bit. The government's position was that the historical analog doesn't shouldn't have to be an exact analog, but something on principle. And so they pointed back to some stuff like from like the Massachusetts colonial code, like pre-constitution, that even there they were saying things like people who presented a danger to the public should not be able to just walk around with guns. So there is at least some historical analog they were able to point to. And even though domestic violence wasn't recognized like it is today, it that time, there was definitely at least some history of legislators understanding, yeah, we don't just want just anybody walking around with a gun when they're threatening the life and safety of others. Yeah, that's there are right now volunteers that are combing through historical records throughout the country and libraries and the city halls and 
because judges have across the country have expressed disdain for the Bruin decision because they're like, we're not historians. We don't know. And a lot of gun violence prevention advocates are like, we will help you. We will find you all of the analogs. But <laughs> I, it'll be interesting to see how they will make this narrower by saying there has to be historical analog unless you're dangerous, even though they used to arm dangerous people. But what are the potential impacts of this case, Brittany? Yeah, if the court were to find that it is unconstitutional, it could have massive impact because the government lawyer pointed out that this isn't just a federal statute, but that 48 states have a similar statute. And if they were to say that kind of regulation is unconstitutional, it would basically make it much easier for domestic abusers to get their hands on guns again. And that could be a real problem. And um, I think it would have limited impact at the federal level. Apparently, there's only like less than 50 of these cases filed under this statute a year federally. But what it would really impact is the state's ability to continue to have their laws on the books. But I don't think that's what, where we're going to go in this. And I think ultimately what impact it will have is some clarification of exactly what the court meant by its broad and vague decision last year. Yeah, that's we'll be watching. And it should be known, too, that the way that Mr. Rahimi acted is very normal for how people who use domestic violence within their relationships uh, act with guns. Like, this is not that much of an outlier. So we'll see how they go. So you have you have three cases. So go, come and talk about this next case, which is a different constitutional we're talking about here. Yeah, we're moving from the Second Amendment to the First Amendment. And... O'Connor, Ratcliffe v. Garnier, and Linky v. Free v. Free. The Garnier case is out of the Ninth Circuit out of California, and Linky v. Freed is out of the Sixth Circuit and was out of Michigan. The two circuits came to very different conclusions here. And in O'Connor, Ratcliffe, it was a school board member in California who blocked some people who were trolling her social media account. It was her personal page, but it was one that she used to communicate about various school board things. And the Ninth Circuit in that case determined that because even though it was her private personal page that she had you know, put in there, her school board member was listed as her occupation, and there was so much information about the school board in there that the Ninth Circuit determined that it had the trappings of a public page, and therefore it was reasonable for constituents to believe that was her public page, even though the school board actually had no control over it. And Linky v. Freed out of Michigan was like a city manager, and he also had deleted critical comments from his personal Facebook page. His case was a little different in that his page had some city updates and city business on it, but was also had like cat pictures and was a little bit more his personal page. And the Sixth Circuit took a more easy test of just, did the government tell him to set up this page? No, then it's not a government page. To me, that makes a lot of sense and seems like the simplest way to, to look at this. But the Ninth Circuit, of course, took this other position that had the trappings of a public page. Interestingly, oh wait, Aaron, did you have a question on this for me? <laughs> yeah. And I'll just say like when we're one of the questions is going to be like, what's the impact? I think that if you're looking at somebody who's very interested in the impact, but this also is a case that's been heard. So talk a little bit about how the um oral arguments went and then you could talk about the impact too. Where do they seem to be going with this? Yeah. So this was heard last week and I, I thought one of the lawyers made a really good point when talking about the trappings of a public page. And he said, what about if there's a police officer in uniform just got up his shift and he's rushing to go pick up his kid from school. And so he shoves somebody out of the way to, to go get to his kid, even though he's in full uniform and has his badge on. I think we could all agree that he's not acting as a state actor in that moment. He's acting as a parent in his private capacity. 
even though the uniform might give him the trappings of being a public official in that moment. What the court really was struggling with is really how are we going to define what a public page is and what a private page is. They seemed very skeptical of the Sixth Circuit test of just was it government owned and government directed? They seemed like they were going to try to thread a needle and come up with maybe a more complicated test. For anyone who is a school board member or state legislator or city manager, it can have massive impact on how you communicate on social media, on whether you're allowed to, to block people who are coming to your personal page just to troll you. I would advise any public official like you, um, if you have a personal page, definitely keep it personal. Post baby pics and cat pics and keep your public business on your public page. <laughs> I appreciate the advice. I will say my personal page is set to public because I just assume everything I put on there will end up on the public, but it is pictures of my dogs and the meals I cook. So people can enjoy at their leisure. My official stuff is on my official page, but I will be watching this one closely. I'll be coming back to you to interpret the opinion. So I know what is constitutional and legal for me to do and what is not. Okay. So let's go to your last case, Brittany. This is also a First Amendment case. This one is fascinating to me. So tell us a little bit about the case. What's it about and where the parties here? Yeah, so Net Choice LLC v. Paxton comes out of Texas. Net Choice LLC is an organization that was created that all the big social media companies joined and created to fight this law. Some of you might remember a few years ago, still during the Trump administration, when there were a lot of like alt-right and far-right figures that were getting upset at Facebook and Twitter and claiming that their posts were being quote-unquote shadow banned or kept from being seen by a wider audience. And they claimed that conservatives were being censored and conservative views weren't being allowed out as much attention as liberal views. Now, every time you sign up with a social media company, though, to have a public profile, you're agreeing to certain terms and conditions. And all these social media services have some conditions about they don't want certain hateful content. And they don't want Nazi content necessarily being front and center of their social media site because a big part of their business is ad revenue, just like any media entity. And they have, a, to me, they have a First Amendment right to determine what views get published and don't just the same way the Star Tribune doesn't have to publish every letter to the editor that it gets if something is too extreme and hateful. They don't have to publish it. That doesn't mean they don't still publish opposing views, but they want to have some ability to moderate what, what's going on the pages of their paper. And so Texas passed a law that says any social media platform with more than 50 million users may not block, remove, demonetize, or otherwise shadow ban any content based on that user's political views. We have the First Amendment rights of the social media company coming up against the First Amendment rights of social media users here. And so this case is really interesting. It blew my mind that it even got to the Supreme Court because this is a court that not that long ago in Citizens United made it very clear that corporations have the same fundamental constitutional rights under our constitution as any person does. So to me, obviously, if a social media company doesn't want Nazi content, it probably should be allowed to moderate that Nazi content, protects its ad dollars. Taxes seem to think otherwise. So yeah. <laughs> I will say I was floored that this made it to the Supreme Court because the First Amendment protects 
speech from being punished by the government, right? It doesn't allow you to say whatever you want everywhere. But it made me think, what if there was a social media platform that was exclusively for cat content? That was it. There are 100 million users. You can only talk about cats, post about cats. And someone was like, I want to post about dogs. And they're like, nope. And they were, they can do that. It is a privately held company that gets to determine what they what goes on and what the terms of use are. And so I'm floored that this has made it to the Supreme Court where they're like, gee, I don't know. Can a government say what I did? This is wild to me. The impact, do you want to just, I think you probably touched on it, but do you just want to talk a little bit about what the potential impact is? Yeah, this can have massive impact on social media companies' ability to protect their bottom line, basically. I think what, whether you're liberal or conservative, you should agree that businesses are, should be allowed to to protect their interests when it comes to what content they're producing and promoting. And so it could have major implications. And I think if Texas were to get its way, then I think you'd see a lot of social media companies maybe completely change how they do business or maybe even drop out of the business altogether because they don't want to become truth social and just be overrun by Nazi content. <laughs> no, but nobody wants their dog food ads next to Nazi content. That is very real. This will be very interesting to see what happens. And I'm very much hoping that the normal and regular understanding of First Amendment rights prevails in this case. I'm going to ask uh, all of our esteemed legal colleagues this final question answered whatever order feels comfortable for you. What is your biggest takeaway from the cases we've outlined here, what the Supreme Court term is or could be? What's the big takeaway that you want people to, to have? I'll call on you as you not start. I am definitely always eager to jump in and share my opinion about the Supreme Court. I think we're at a moment in the Supreme Court's history where, because, frankly, of the Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade, where a lot more people are paying attention to the mechanics of the court. We've had a very conservative court for a long time. In fact, the majority of the court's history except for a few outlier years during the Warren court, has been a conservative institution. And people are starting to pay closer attention, starting to ask real, real, real questions about court reform. And it will be interesting, I think, to see how the U.S. Supreme Court responds in this moment, whether the kind of like more radical wing that kind of, from my perspective, has a burn it all down approach prevails or whether the more moderate wing which I want to emphasize is not actually moderate, is extremely conservative, but has been a lot stealthier about it, uh, whether that wing prevails. And so it'll be really interesting, I think, to see as the court realizes perhaps the kind of trouble it's in as people are paying closer attention and asking court reform kind of related questions, how that will shake out. Definitely dogs that caught the car. Like they do want to do all of these things and they want to do them fast, but they know no one likes it. So they're like, Try and figure that out. Who's next? Go ahead, Sarah. I'll just say, for me, as someone who went to law school and learned how this all works like over 10 years ago now, it just seems like the rules don't apply anymore. Like we're seeing these decisions like in 303 Creative and even out just the way that this court is coming to its decision. There's always been political aspects to how the court has made its decisions, but none of the rules I was taught seem to apply anymore. So every decision I'm like, I don't, I don't know if the precedent matters here on if we're creating some whole new thing here. So I'm just watching flabbergasted. I can't wait to see what happens next, which I say with fear in my face covered because I'm terrified a lot of the time about what's going to happen next. Yes, my flabber has never been more gasted at some of the decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. Grace Moore, I'm going to come to you and then Brittany. Grace Moore, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just repeat what Christine and Sarah Jane have both said. But I'll also add, I think what we hope this webinar has shown is that there's some really important cases in front of the court this term. And I think it's a little easier to not pay as much attention to this term because there aren't any kind of blockbuster cases that we've had in previous years that there's been a lot of attention on specific issues, whether that's Dobbs, affirmative action. But that clearly, as we hope we've shown you, there's some really important cases that the court is working with this year that it could have some pretty profound implications and to not let up that attention that's on the court. and. Um, yeah, so I'll just, I think that's what I'm really, what I think is important about this term. 
Thank you. And Brittany, I'm going to come to you. And then before we close out, I will talk about two cases that gender justice is watching related to medication, abortion, and gender affirming care for trans youth. But Brittany, go ahead. Yeah, for me, and I, I might be an outlier here. I actually thought, thought in that gun case last year in the Bruin decision, I, I thought the court came to the right conclusion as far as the outcome and that the New York law was too vague and gave too much power to public officials to decide who got to get a gun or didn't, and that there were some racial discriminate discriminatory problems with it. But then the way they came to it was so vague and broad in this whole historical analog thing that they ended up with a bad decision. I think they could have done a lot more narrowly. And like I said earlier, it really feels like in their zeal to make these broad sweeping rulings, now they're having to see all the extra litigation that's coming from that. And they're now going to have to figure out how to walk back some of their broad, vague, sweeping rulings and actually make them workable. I will say thanks, Supreme Court, for this new jobs program for lawyers, because there's going to be a lot of cases needed to figure all this out. <laughs> that is very true. So before we close out, two cases that are obviously very near and dear to the people who work at Gender Justice and the people who follow us. The case about mifepristone, which is one of the two medications and medication abortion, there have been dueling decisions that have come out. There is a group supported by the Fifth Circuit now trying to ban mifepristone, which has been on the market for more than 20 years and is very safe and safer than over-the-counter Tylenol, safer than Viagra, uh, safer than penicillin. All of those are safe, just mifepristone is the safest. And the Supreme Court has not accepted cert in that court yet. I will tell you, I was the lead amici on an amicus brief encouraging the Supreme Court to accept cert or hear the case, but they have not done so yet. And then there is also a, a case before the Supreme Court about a gender-affirming care ban out of the state of Tennessee. And the, in Kentucky now. And Kentucky. And the Sixth Circuit has ruled and they, the Supreme Court has not necessarily or has not accepted cert in those cases. That's not to say they won't or couldn't this term, but they have it yet. So we are watching and waiting to see what happens with those cases, but no movement as of now. I want to thank my esteemed colleagues who just do incredible work on behalf of the people of Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota to advance gender equity through the law and your smart brains and preparing this great presentation. We're going to have you back to talk about the end of the term. So stay prepared. Thank you all so much for joining us. It is give to the max day, week, month. So support gender justice's work to bring you this great content and donate. And we will see you all when there is a horrifying or great update about the Supreme Court. Have a great one, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audrey Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.